Well, this fall, we have been doing a series focused on rediscovering spirit form community. And because the church in the book of Acts is an excellent model of what a spirit form community looks like, we've been considering some of the characteristics of the early church in Acts. And so for those of you who haven't been with us on this journey so far, we've looked at Christ-centered teaching, fellowship, what that really means, prayer, breaking bread, and last week we talked about missional sending. Today we're going to talk about gift-based serving, gift-based serving. In the seventh season of Seinfeld, uh, there's a, there's a storyline where Kramer excitedly tells his friends about a soup counter that serves the best soup ever. And so the, all, the other friends, of course, are excited and they want to try the soup, but there's a problem. And the problem is the owner has a very strict process, a very controlling process for ordering if you're going to get your soup. And if you don't follow the protocol exactly, then you're denied service. And so here's just a quick example of that. Medium turkey chili. Medium crab bisque. I didn't get any bread. Just forget it. Let it go. Um, excuse me. Uh, I think you forgot my bread. Bread? Two dollars extra. Two dollars? But everyone in front of me got free bread. You want bread? Yes, please. Three dollars! <laughs> what? No soup for you! Being denied food is not a positive experience. And in the early church, we'll see in our scripture this morning that a problem arose when some of the widows within the community were denied food. And this created a potential division in the church community and demanded the apostles to intervene immediately and resolve the problem. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. And I, our goal today is to see that in a spirit-formed community, followers of Jesus serve according to their gifts to ensure that all are cared for and unity thrives. Our text this morning is Acts 6, 1 to 7. Thank you, Allison, for reading that earlier. And extra stars for you for pronouncing all those names. People think we get congregation members to read it just because, you know, we want to involve you, but really it's because we can't pronounce the names and we need others to, to do it. I want to begin today with Jesus' example. The event that takes place in Acts chapter 6 cannot be understood as an isolated event, but it needs to be understood within the broader context of the ministry of Jesus. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, table meals were more than just the necessity of sustenance. Table meals established boundaries of who was in and who was out, who was received and who was rejected. And so Jews were in because they were clean, but Gentiles were out because they were unclean. 
The rich were in because they had high economic status. The poor were out because they had low economic status. The righteous were in because they were spiritual. The sinners were, in, were out because they lacked spirituality. The ministry of Jesus created a very uncomfortable context for the religious leadership because Jesus continually broke down these boundaries and violated their established value system by including outcasts, sinners, tax collectors, immoral people, the marginalized to share in table fellowship with him. Jesus used table fellowship to advance the gospel, to break down barriers, to invite the whosoever will to come to him. Now, despite the fact that Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that he, being God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows, we might be surprised to know that widows were viewed in the Jewish religious culture of Jesus' time as being outcasts. Not only did Jesus destroy the boundaries represented in table fellowship by receiving those that the religious establishment rejected, we'll see as we look into the New Testament that Jesus actually also specifically elevated widows. You may look in Luke chapter 2 where the birth story of Jesus is unfolding and we're told that when he's eight days old, he's brought to the temple to be dedicated. And in that story, there are two key people that that Luke deems worthy in God's story to be referenced. One, of course, is Simeon, and the other one who sometimes falls in the shadows is Anna, the widow. We also see in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is, is sharing and teaching, and he references Elijah, but specifically, he references and celebrates the foreigner, the widow of Zarephath, as an unlikely choice to be used of God in order for God to fulfill his purposes. In Luke chapter 7, we read the story of Jesus encountering at the city gates the widow of Nain, who is leading a funeral procession that her only son has died, and Jesus intervenes in this widow's life and raises her son from the dead and gives him back to his mom. And of course, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable of the persistent widow to elevate the importance of persistent faith. And so Jesus, not only did Jesus break down the barriers that kept marginalized people out in how he dealt with table fellowship, but he especially raised the value of widows that were seen as outcasts. This is important for us in understanding where we're going in Acts chapter 6. So we see Jesus' example. Secondly, we see Satan's attack. Satan's attack. There are two things that we observe early in the chapters of the book of Acts. The first is the birth and this explosive growth of a spirit-formed and spirit-empowered community. It's incredible, and we see that in the early chapters. But the second thing we see right from the very beginning is the strategy of Satan to destroy this infant church. 
And there are three ways in the early chapters that we see how he attempted to destroy the church. The first was persecution, and we touched on that last week. That with Stephen's death, great persecution broke out. People were being pulled from their homes in the middle of the night. Many of them were arrested or beaten, intimidated, and some were even killed. The enemy was using persecution so that those opposed to the church would come in on the church and crush it by force. The second thing we see is moral compromise, and we talked about this a few weeks back. This attack didn't come from outside the church. It came from inside the church, and we considered the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how the deceit in their lives and in their hearts was an attempt to destroy the church. The third one we see is distraction. Distraction. Attempting to get the leadership to leave what they were gifted to do, to leave what they were called to do, in order to react to what was needed to be done in the moment. Now, it's the third one that we see evidenced in our scripture today. Following the pattern of the ministry of Jesus, the early church provided regular table meals, and one of the emphasis was caring for the widows. The diversity of the early church in the early beginning stages was primarily two groups that were represented, Greeks and Hebrews. The Greeks came from Greek backgrounds and spoke Greek. That makes sense, right? The Hebrews, they came from Jewish backgrounds, and they spoke primarily Aramaic. Now, prior to becoming Jesus followers, most Greek Jews went to Greek-speaking synagogues, and most Hebrew Jews went to Aramaic-speaking synagogues. They didn't go together. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the early church began, they all came together as one group of Christ followers, the church. And so within this group of everyone together, there are both Greek widows and Jewish widows that benefited from these table meals that were providing food for those in need. But there was a problem. And if you look closely at the text, it's really a a powerful problem because the Greek believers came to the apostles and they complained that what? Quote, their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food while the Jewish widows received the daily benefit. The Greek widows were made to feel like outsiders, the very opposite of everything that Jesus had demonstrated in his ministry. The opposite of that was happening right now in this church. Up until this point, the church had demonstrated extraordinary unity, extraordinary generosity. We're told they're of one heart and soul, that no one was in need of anything because those who had gave to those who didn't. And now what we have in this moment is suddenly there is internal division and exclusion that is threatening to destroy this young church. And so instead of one group, there are now two groups us and them. They're divided. Unity is threatened. Satan is working to destroy the church from within. 
by destroying unity. Thirdly, we see the apostles' response. As you read the book of Acts, you will see that table fellowship was as important to the ministry of the followers of Jesus as it, they carried on his ministry as it was to the ministry of Jesus as Luke records it in his gospel. It was as controversial for the apostles as it was for Jesus. And we see this with Peter and Cornelius, this Gentile who's come to faith, who's been filled with the Holy Spirit, but he's still a Gentile. And the church is outraged that they're, that they're you know, Peter is sharing table fellowship with him. And we're going to deal with that one down the road. Table fellowship, feeding the needy, was not viewed as a menial task. It was significantly important because it demonstrated the welcoming of outcasts and the oppressed. It symbolized the gospel in practical terms. And so for this reason, the apostles viewed this as a serious problem that needed an immediate solution. Table meals required a great deal of time and attention. Administrative oversight was needed. Food needed to be located and purchased. Accounts needed to be cared for. Food needed to be prepared and served and cleaned up. And so the apostles called all the disciples together for a meeting to address the issue. And the apostles made it clear that the responsibility for serving the table fellowship was not for them to do. Now, it's important for us to understand something here. It wasn't because they viewed this ministry as something that was beneath them. It wasn't because they saw it as a lesser ministry on the, you know, on the, 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 the hierarchy of important ministries. That is not what is happening here. What is happening here is this. The apostles knew what their calling was. They knew what their calling was. They knew that their calling was to preach the word of God, that they had been prepared in those years with Jesus to do something that no one else was able to do at that time. And so they were called to preach the word. They were called to pray. They were called to bring leadership to the bigger picture. They were called, trained, gifted and empowered by the Spirit for these tasks. And they knew it. To abandon their responsibilities, to abandon God's calling and gifting to do something different, meant that by doing that something different, they would be neglecting what they were called and gifted to do. That's the problem. They see it as important, but they recognize if we do it, this is going to be detrimental, not a good thing. And so they suggested to the group that they pick seven people who were filled with the Spirit and wisdom. People who were gifted administrators, who were both spiritual, filled with the Spirit, and practical, full of wisdom, who would lead this ministry with the attention and the importance that it deserved. And so the apostles would then delegate this important responsibility to them, and the apostles would continue to focus on prayer and on preaching and on leading the church as a whole. 
Well, this proposal pleased the whole group. What a great idea. And so instantly, there is consensus. Instantly, unity that was threatened is now coming back together. And so we're told that the apostles allowed the disciples to choose the seven, and when they chose these seven deacons, they call them, and deacons in our time is often referred to as board members, but in Scripture, the word deacon comes from the, 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 you know, the, the Greek word which means to minister or to serve. And so what they're saying is they've chosen seven people to serve, to minister in a particular ministry, brought them to the apostles, and the apostles saw that this was a good choice and laid hands on them and prayed for them. And so, again, like last week, we said laying on of hands is a sign not only of commissioning to start a new ministry, but unity. We're of one mind and one heart, and we believe that this is right. People being willing to serve according to their gifting enabled the critical ministry of caring for the widows to continue, but also in the bigger picture, it restored the church back to unity. Back to unity. There are three insights from this text that I would like to focus on today. The first, social justice. I believe one of the greatest challenges that is facing the church, the ministry of the kingdom of God, is our inability to establish balance. Focusing more on some areas while at the same time neglecting others. There's a significant debate and difference of opinion among church leadership today regarding the priority and focus of what ministry should be. Some would argue that the church, while focused on the truth of the gospel, has neglected social justice and the poor. Others would argue that the church has focused so much on social justice and the poor that it has neglected the gospel. In fact, last year, in 2018, approximately 4,000 evangelical pastors in the U.S. primarily, but some from Canada as well, many of them who are very well known, who are very high profile, who think Beth Moore should go home, but we're not going to say anything more about that today, were so concerned with, quote, mixing the Christian gospel with social activity that they came together and signed what is now referred to as the Dallas Statement. And the Dallas Statement denounces social activity because social activity was viewed as, quote, a threat to the gospel. You might sense where I stand on that issue. The question is, what is more important for the church? Is preaching the gospel most important or is demonstrating justice more important? Which is more important? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. Because it's not a multiple choice question. We are called to both. In fact, justice and mercy are an unbreakable bond. You can't have one without the other. 
From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see the heart of God for the poor. If you cut out all of the pages where the poor are referenced in Scripture, you won't have much of a Bible left. God's care for the poor, for the foreigner, for the marginalized. In Luke 4, when Jesus declared what his mission was as he stood in the synagogue and said that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, justice was central to his mission. Folks, justice is the gospel. It is the gospel. You can't have the gospel without justice. To neglect either is to neglect the call of Jesus to the church in this world. And so we don't have to choose one over the other. They are both important and they are both necessary. And so if the church, and I believe this to my core, if the church is going to reach people who do not know Jesus, and the last time I checked, that's our mandate, it will need to rediscover the heart of Jesus for the marginalized and embrace social justice as significant to the gospel. There are a lot of areas and issues and people in culture that the church is not even talking about, let alone reaching. We need to address issues of human trafficking, especially when we're in one of the highest geographical rates, areas with the rates of human trafficking of Canada right on our doorstep. Homelessness. There's a housing crisis. Do you know that the starting rate for an apartment in this town is approximately $1,700 a month for a one-bedroom apartment? There's a housing crisis. People have nowhere to live. There's hunger and poverty, youth at risk, immigration, LGBTQ2 issues, suicide, mental health crises, All of these are significant to the mission of Jesus that he has given us as a church. They're all significant. And the truth is, many denominations, many churches, many believers are refusing to even have discussions on how important it is to engage these issues. But we must have the conversation We can't pretend these things don't exist. Serving others is never a menial task. It is central to the gospel that there be room for everyone at the table. Number two, enemy agenda. In his book, The Eye of the Storm, Max Lucado tells a story And I've read this story to you before, so I'm not going to do that this morning. Story of going fishing with his dad and his friend Mark when he's a boy. They're excited. They're getting ready for the big trip. They're thrilled when the day finally arrived. They get there. They set up the camper, but the weather outside is not suitable for fishing. And so this continues on for days. As the days pass, the weather just keeps getting worse. At first, they're okay in the camper. They're having fun. But there came a point when things turned significantly. That time when in a small space with the same people, personality flaws become magnified. Being in a small space became problematic. 
And as he tells the story, the trip ended badly. And this is Lucado's takeaway on this. He says, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. We see in our passage today that when a church is not doing what it is supposed to be doing, when followers of Jesus are not focused on what they should be focusing on, the result is division, disunity, quarrels, and complaining. We see in Acts that the enemy often attacks from within, not without, is an attempt to destroy the church. That's why the Bible calls it wolves in sheep's clothing. Because if it was for people on the outside, they just show up as wolves. It's on the inside where the sheep, the wolves are disguised. The enemy attacks from within to destroy the church. We also see when followers of Jesus take ownership of the ministry and are willing to serve and are willing to desire to use their gifts to, to contribute to the greater good, it brings a community together in unity. One of the greatest deterrents to disunity, to division, is working together, is exercising our individual gifts that God, by his spirit, has given us, focusing our needs not on ourselves, but on the needs, focusing not on the needs of ourselves, but others. Now, this is particularly difficult when you live in a time when the culture tells us that our time and our giftings are needed over here and also told that we should think of ourselves first. We must deliberately work against the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit to make ourselves available to be used where God wants to use us putting others above ourselves, denouncing anything that the enemy would use to divide us. The enemy wants to create a community of us and them, of splinters and divisions, of people being at odds. But the Holy Spirit wants to create a community that is unified in purpose and passion and contribution. Thirdly, gifted service. Sometimes when a church creates a ministry structure to support the areas they desire to become involved in, it can become complicated because sometimes there are too many roles to be filled and too few people to fill them. Often ministries that are implemented to serve the vision, end up being served when they no longer have value, when it's no longer the best way to be doing that ministry. But we get to that point where 
the purpose is long forgotten, the impact is missing, but you're stuck because no one wants to let that ministry go. They don't want to let it go because for a season, it was important. It served its purpose, but seasons change. When you stay at a church for 100 years like I have, you get to be the person who brings in the new thing that people push back against, and you also get to be the guy who later takes it away because it's no longer effective, and you get to push back again because we become attached to our ministries and how we do it, losing sight sometimes of why we were doing it, what value it had, and we miss the point that it's no longer a valuable way to do it. When you do that, people end up serving in areas outside of their gifting and passions because there are either too many holes to fill or too too few people to help out. And so people start jumping in to fill the holes. And the result is ministry burnout. It's hard to break the cycle within a church setting without significant repercussions. But I believe the truth that needs to be spoken today is this. And this is going to be mostly unpopular with our pastoral staff. And no, I did not brief them on this ahead of time. But there's some things we need to understand. The first thing we need to understand is this. God calls all of his people to do something. God calls all of his people to do something. No one is exempt. All of us who are followers of Jesus are called to do something. Secondly, everyone cannot do everything. Everyone cannot do everything. You should not be expected to, nor do you have the ability to do everything. And thirdly, God calls different people to different ministries. A good thing can be a wrong thing for you. A good thing can be a wrong thing for you. God expects us to concentrate on the areas that he has called us to, given us a passion for, has gifted us in, and not to get distracted from doing those things by doing other things. Now, I realize that, and this is where it might get a little unpopular with the people I work with, the potential results of what I'm saying are, are these. For some of you, this is going to be liberating. You're overwhelmed. You're exhausted. And what I'm saying today is giving you permission to adjust your involvement. In fact, I am now in this moment giving you permission to quit some of your ministry. You heard it right from the pulpit. I'm not getting applause from the front row. You can quit. If you are burning yourself out doing things that are not within your gifting, your calling, and your passion of what God has placed you here to do, you should not be doing that. You should not be burning yourself out. Listen, I grew up and was trained as a pastor in the time when exhaustion was the goal of a good pastor. If you could work yourself to the point of exhaustion, you were worth your salary. I've shed that. 
I literally now only work Sundays. Not true, but when the badge is no longer, how many nights a week can the lights be on in the church? How many nights can you be out? How many hours a week do you work? That was the thing. I worked 60. This, oh, I worked 70. Oh, really? Well, last week before that one, I worked 80. Who's impressed? God's not. If you are burning yourself out by trying to fill too many holes that are not even within your gifting and calling, you should not be doing them. I give you permission. Number two, for some of you, it's going to be burdensome. Because as the people who take me seriously today decide they're going to phase out in a very meaningful and appropriate manner from the ministries they're now doing, you're going to be left with vacancies to fill. All of a sudden, you're not going to have leaders and teachers and organizers and volunteers, and they're not going to be there anymore. You're going to be left with vacancies that, that you need to fill. For you, this is going to be burdensome, and I want you to know that I'm sorry, not sorry. I am, but I'm not, because principally, we should not expect people to work themselves to exhaustion. Thirdly, for some of you, it will be life-changing. Because some of you who are doing nothing, oh, do you think you're getting off the hook? Oh, no. Some of you who are doing nothing or very little, well, if you take what I'm saying seriously, this is going to be life-changing because you, not someone else, not them, but you will now need to step up. That's how it works. Like, you don't think I'd let people quit and then not have a backup plan, did you? Like, absolutely not. I want to relieve some of the people who are killing themselves for this church while some of you do nothing. Sorry if I offended you. Not sorry. It can't work that way. Families can't work that way. I mean, how many of you parents are frustrated to no end because you're doing everything and your adult children who still live in your house for free, this is just theoretical, are doing nothing? Families wouldn't function that way but we think the church can. Hello? No, you carry your dish to the dishwasher. And guess what? If you pull the handle, it opens and you can actually put it inside. And I'm not talking about dishes and dishwashers if you're not following my line of thought. Some of you have been leaving your, your dishes on the counter for years thinking the dish fairy is going to come and take care of it. The dish fairy is dead. No, someone else is carrying your load. It's over. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus in a community, you will need to reconsider your priorities and find a place to serve that matches your giftings and your passion. Even if you have no passion, fit it to your giftings. The passion will follow. Folks, there's no free rides. There's no excuses in a spirit-formed community. That's not how it works. We're not a local gathering of a group. We're the body of Jesus Christ, gifted to function. And one, one little part, this week I got a paper cut. I almost went home. It hurt so bad. That one little piece of my finger was so important to my health and well-being. Mark talked me into staying.
Everyone's important. Everyone's got something to do. And it's time to stop being spectators and step up. This is going to be life-changing for you. Some, and so be it. And by the way, not my rule. Not my rule. It's the Holy Spirit's rule. So if you need to debate that, I suspect you chat with him. For some of you, it's going to be reassignment. Maybe you're on the right bus, but you're in the wrong seat. Some of you are on board. You're serving, you're helping. But where you're serving and helping just doesn't seem like it really fits you. There's other things that you're more passionate about. And so some of you are going to leave the seat that you're currently sitting in and you're going to move over to a seat where you're going to start doing what you should have been doing all along. Because again, here's the problem. When you create so much that it creates holes, that people have to fill them unless, without them falling apart, then people end up in seats they should never have been in doing stuff that they weren't gifted or called to do just because they are so committed they can't bear to see it crumble. And God honors that attitude, but I'm telling you, in a spirit-formed community, it works when people are on the bus and they're sitting in the right seat. If you hate children, as an example, the nursery is probably not the ministry for you. Putting that out there. Serving in a spirit-formed community is not about filling holes or running programs. It's about thriving by serving as you carry out what the Holy Spirit has gifted you to do. All of them are important. All of them are necessary. I'm going to invite our worship team back. I'm almost done yelling at you now. You know, if I didn't care about you, I'd preach different, right? It's only because I love you. It's like you say, this is going to hurt me more than you. Folks, in a spirit-formed community, followers of Jesus serve according to their gifts to ensure that all are cared for and unity thrives. So let's embrace the gospel in its fullness. Let's not hold back from engaging in social activity. Let's live lives of justice and mercy. Let's be aware that the enemy's desire is to destroy the church from within by creating division among us. And whatever we do, do not let that happen. And let's serve the kingdom of God using the gifting and passions that the Holy Spirit has placed in us. Because that's what we see in a spirit-formed church. Lord, we just thank you this morning. We didn't join a spirit-formed community because we needed to be a part of something. We joined a spirit-formed community because we found you. We experienced you and we believe that you are the life changer. And you brought us into a community that is so diverse yet you brought us together under you. Our unity is you. 
you brought us together and given us this incredible gift of being a part of a spirit-formed community so that we don't have to live this life alone. That we were not created to do this alone. We are not intended to do this alone. But we get to do it together. And Lord, today I pray for those who might be struggling because sometimes when we take on too much, we become overwhelmed and burnt out and we get discouraged and it can negatively affect us. And I pray for those that might be here today that just are just feeling so worn down. And God, we want to do more today than just say we'll pray for you, as important as that is. We do pray for them today. We ask for your strength. But Lord, we want to create an environment that is such that they don't have to see ministry as a chore and a negative thing, but as an exciting, fulfilling joy. And so God, I pray that as we forge ahead, I pray for unity. I pray for strength, clear vision, commitment, and a willingness for us to do what you called us to. Not out of an expectation of anyone else other than out of a response to you. You have called us into salvation. You have called us into your ministry, called us into your mission. You've empowered us with your spirit. You've given us gifts in the body. And Father, I pray that we would not forfeit one of those things, but all of them would be functioning in their fullness, in serving you, in serving your kingdom, in serving your people within the church and those you died for outside our church. So Father, I pray that we will never compromise the truth, nor will we ever neglect to care for those that you love so dearly. Would you lead us and guide us today as we make our way from this place? Lord, I pray that you'll continue to have conversations with us this week through your spirit, that we will wrestle in our hearts and come to grips with what we need to do to best serve you in the way that you've called us to so that your work might advance. Not just your work in the kingdom, but your work in us. What you want to do in us and through us as individuals and the great joy that comes when we recognize that we're being used by you. So Father, I pray, lead us and guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. 